for me, you know, I, I, I mean, back to my parents, thinking about the, the bathroom that I grew up in, they had this plaque up and it was a life lived for others. The only life lived for others is a life worthwhile. And that's a quote by Albert Einstein. And the thing that I like most about that quote, and it's been my North Star, is that you have a man of science and kind of technology and math there that is telling and reminding everybody that the reason to operate and to navigate life is in service of others. And that's always been my North Star. It's been the reason why I was drawn to Facebook and the reason why I continue to be you know, pretty fueled and excited about what we are doing and what we have the opportunity to do even 10 years into my, my particular journey here. Welcome to The Common Threads. During each episode, we'll travel through time to explore the childhoods, influences, and habits of some of the world's leading athletes, industry experts, and entrepreneurs. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts or your favorite listening app and visit ProKit, where we bring together the best interviews, podcasts, and articles in a new platform for athletes. I'm your host, David Swain. So we are going to kick off this episode of The Common Threads with a very special guest, Ime Archibong. Ime and I worked together at Facebook in the early days. I joined in uh, 2008, and I believe you were there. When did you start, 2010? Yeah, I started 2010. All right, so we're going to get into all that. But first, an intro. So Ime is the head of new product experimentation at Facebook, a team of entrepreneurs creating standalone new experiences. Um, they've got apps for couples, apps for bringing people together around sports. We'll hear some of what else is going on. He previously led product partnerships where he worked with developers, community leaders, nonprofits around the world. That's where we had the joy of working together. He studied oh, yeah. computer science and engineering at Yale, where he was the captain of the basketball team. And I went searching on YouTube yesterday for an old video that I remember seeing in days past, and I'm going to try to start, find that one of a, of a <laughs> backboard breaking. <laughs> Um, oh, I don't days. know if that thing's hit the internet in a while, so we might, we might give it another shot. Uh, then he went to Stanford, where he's the president of the business school. He's got more than a dozen patents. He's on the boards of nonprofits, empowering underserved youth and entrepreneurs. Uh, nonprofits like the Girls Effect, Fast Forward, Live in Peace, and and others. Um, but for me, nothing foreshadowed Ime's success in his career and the impact he's had on the people around him and including myself is rewind to 2003 and he received the Roosevelt L. Thompson prize at Yale, which was given to a graduate for exemplifying great human warmth, a commitment to fairness, compassion for all people and the promise of moral leadership. And if I could think of why we started the common threads, it was to spotlight people like Ime that do that. And, um, so, Ime, welcome to the show. And it's an honor. Yes. And and I start with a very hard question every time, which is what did you have for breakfast this morning? Oh, oh it's it's a, it's election week here in the United States, as you know. So my diet has not been um, one that I've been proud of. So this morning, like the last two mornings, uh, I started my day with a cookie. <laughs> <laughs> What type of cookie? 
Oh man, Whole Foods is right down the street from where I live in San Francisco and they have a brown butter cookie, which is a premium cookie that they put out there and it is uh, to die for, but also uh, dangerously addictive. So that's, uh, that's my strike zone. <laughs> there we go. What time of day was this? Uh, you know me, I'm an early bird, so I'm typically up uh, working in the six o'clock hour. So um, as you keep asking these questions, I continue to get more and more embarrassed right now because A, you shouldn't be eating cookies for breakfast and definitely not six in the morning. Oh my gosh. That is, that's like my first memory of you was, um, so we both worked on the platform side of Facebook and there was, a, I guess still is, but the big conference of the year called F8 where we brought right. developers and startups from all around the world together to talk about the future of what we were doing and bring them along on the journey and, and get, um, and it was, it was a, a pretty special time and incredibly intense in those early years with very few n number of people on our side, um, working on it. And I'd get into the office thinking I was like way ahead of everyone. So early, ready to go, I had my coffee going and, EMA had already worked out and been sitting at his computer for two hours <laughs> and, <laughs> and that was a daily occurrence. So, um, that work ethic, uh, you, how have you been able to continue that? Is it still, uh, still there? Yeah, it's still there for sure. Uh, I think that there is a, um, oh, there's a number of different things that fuel it. I think as you, you get older, you realize where and when kind of what time you do your best work where you have energy, in my case, when I'm the most strategic and the most active, and that tends to be in the mornings. Um, so that that hasn't changed at all. And, you know, underpinning that, of course, is this drive to, to do more. Um, I, for better or worse, have a little bit of a never satisfied and, you know, real, feel really, really fortunate to be uh, in this industry, uh, at this company, Facebook, uh, during this moment of time. Uh, in history and just the opportunity we have ahead of us to ensure that as the uh, you know, humanity and society is trying to figure out the internet, you know, to, to, to squander the seat that I have or the time that I have to try to help shape that and make sure that we get it right over the long arc of history. It's uh, uh, something that fuels me. So it hasn't gone anywhere. If anything, the urgency continues to feel like it. Uh, it's only increased. <laughs> yeah. And so let's go back to, to childhood and kind of your influences and what growing growing up was like for you. So you, it all starts out in Kansas. Is this right? That's right. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. give us the story on, on growing up and, and you can piece mm -hmm. together what influenced how you became who you are now. Yeah. When you talk about, you know, what influenced you, I think everyone has to acknowledge their first teachers, whether that was. And for me, of course it was my parents. Uh, my parents were two Nigerian immigrants. They ended up meeting in Kansas. So they left Nigeria separately, both with uh, a goal of, of further educating themselves in the United States. And then, of course, at some point, uh, being able to, to give back to the communities that they care about and, and raise families. And they met each other in Kansas, Lawrence, Kansas, of all places. Um, shout out to the Rock Jock Jayhawks. <laughs> uh, and you know, they themselves were the reason you know, I grew up with the, what I call the immigrant mentality which is um, scarcity is a thing. You're going to grind and be scrappy. You know, I have memories. I have an older sister, younger brother uh, of us all living in what must have been campus housing, like a one-room <laughs> campus housing on, uh, uh, on Kansas's campus. And, um, you know, seeing my parents wake up every single day and not just, 
you know, care for us and make sure that we were okay, but know that they had to go to work. And, uh, you know, the origin of my name um, will tell you enough of what you need to know about my parents. I'm happy to share that story. Yeah, if you're that'd interested. be great. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I have an older sister named Emma, a younger brother named Tony. So people often ask, uh, why Ime? You know, why did why why were you the one to get the Nigerian name? And uh, you just have to know the context of what I was uh, born into this world. So my mom uh, was pregnant with me in Kansas, uh, you know, late seventies, eighties, early eighties, and she had this professor who was uh, administering her PhD qualifier exam, and her professor you know, had this track record of not necessarily being super keen on women in higher education. Better yet. Uh, you know, a black woman in higher education, better yet a black African woman immigrant in higher education, better yet a black African woman who's an immigrant who was also nine months pregnant <laughs> trying to see education. Yeah. And my mom, you know, approached the professor, hey, I'm pregnant on the same day that my PhD qualifier exam is, is being administered. Can I take it early? Nope. Uh, can I take it a little bit later? Nope. You either come that day or you have to come back next year to finish, uh, this exam off and essentially, you know, further your education. So again, Nigerian immigrant, you got to know my mom too, as well. You know, the resources to just hang around and, and wait for another year for, for, for her to complete her education just wasn't in the cards. So she had me at 7, 17 AM in the morning, uh, despite the doctor's orders, checked herself out of the, the hospital and went and sat down for her exam. According to her, she, she aced it and then she came back in and checked herself uh, back into the hospital. Um, so Ime means patience uh, in my dad's native tongue. And uh, my mom would always say that that was the biggest test of patience in her life. So, oh my gosh. Uh, okay. yeah. Yeah. So what were those, like, talk us through the next, you know, the next five to 10 years of, um, you know, what your, your parents, situation yeah. in academics and what kind of like what your childhood looked like of course yeah so they were they were early students so the seed of hard work was planted in me at that early age just kind of watching them navigate and operate the world they were going to school uh they had multiple jobs my dad will often joke that he was you know working at a nursing home and an underwear factory <laughs> and going to school he kind of named kind of the different jobs he had to hold in order to make ends meet um so hard work was kind of those, those early, early years when they were still students trying to, to get their footing in the United States. And then uh, kind of the other big lesson that I learned from them at the time was just how important it was to, to give back, to serve, to stay connected to the community that you care about and the community that took care of you. So again, you can imagine two Nigerian immigrants finding themselves in Kansas in the mid seventies. Uh, the black community in the United States was, uh, was an important part of their foundation. And when it came time for them to graduate, we actually ended up moving to Greensboro, North Carolina. And that was mainly because, you know, my mom was looking at where the different places that she could go and teach and take her talents to. And despite, you know, offers from places around the country, she really wanted to spend time at HBCU, historically black college and university. And uh, North Carolina A&T was an agricultural and technical, you know, HBCU there in Greensboro, North Carolina that made her an offer. And she was really excited about getting there and giving back to the community that I think that she, uh, you know, she found as, as home when she arrived in the States. And did you feel as a kid really connected to the community you were in? Yes and no is the honest answer, Dave. Like, you know, so my parents made it a point to really ensure that my brother or sister and I knew that we were Nigerian. So 
despite where we were going to be, whether it was in Kansas, whether it was in Greensboro, North Carolina, we were going to find the Nigerian community. Um, and within the Black community in the United States, you know, you do have you know, folks that consider themselves pure Africans. You have people who are multiple generations growing up here in the state. So you know, even as we were trying to integrate into North Carolina, you know, the other Nigerian community felt, felt like home. It was great. Uh, the Black community uh, in, in North Carolina, where uh, my mom taught clearly at HBCU, you know, I would say that it took me a little bit of time to really get settled there and, and understand, kind of find my community, find my place. And then, um, you know, that we went to a Catholic school. So a large part of my educational community, which ends up being your good friends, were white, were Catholic, uh, were, were middle class. Um, the only thing we had in common clearly was the Catholicism, at least being raised Catholic. So, you know, those early days were definitely identity formation, uh, like most people. And, um, you know, I, I figured it out over time. But yeah, there was, there was a lot of figuring, find, finding my place and getting comfortable in those early days. Right. And the immigrant mentality of the kind of the scrappiness that, you know, you saw your parents have to work and, you know, dedicate themselves to to get someplace and to fulfill a, a dream as a kid, how aware of that were you? And because it clearly has impacted who you've become, right? And um, that yeah. was there was there pressure to, you know, did you feel like an intense pressure to 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 do that, or was it more a like a pride and a part of your identity of you saw these role models? Yeah, in retrospect, now looking back. You know, it's a tremendous amount of pride, and I am forever grateful for again my my earliest teachers, right? My parents, you know, demonstrating what hard work looked like. I don't know that I would have been able to articulate that as a child, but yeah, seeing both parents get up, you know, grab what they need to grab, get us out the door, head to work, come back, working late into the night grading papers, getting up on the weekend, going and volunteering, which is kind of go 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 and kind of hustle mentality was something that even if you don't um acknowledge it at the time is is uh, they're setting the bar for you right they're showing you what uh the expectation is and i'm appreciative of that there were definitely more explicit moments you know nigerian immigrants um and how they raised their children in the community it's pretty funny right we talk about how oh you got an a minus on a paper why didn't you get that a plus right <laughs> where where were those other two points right like why, why like so the, the bar that was held for my brother and sister and i especially when it came to academics was was incredibly high and was incredibly rigorous and you know my parents weren't going to take excuses and you know they did believe deeply that everyone had agency and that hard work could could compensate for anything that didn't come natural so there were explicit moments uh, that I can remember in those early, early years, even as far back as getting ready for spelling tests, <laughs> where the rigor and the expectations of preparation that my parents put into it uh, around the dinner table and, and demonstrated for us was, um, uh, you know, in, in, ingrained ingrained that DNA in me for sure. That's interesting. I mean, I always I'm always really curious. Like, you know, you go back to you doing your spelling test. Were you naturally talented academically or would you attribute a lot of even your early success in that to hard work science and math came easier to me yeah um so no surprise of the track that i ended up on 
uh, but English and spelling, uh, you know, even my friends that know me closest today know that I have a lot of insecurities around, you know, spelling, despite the fact that I am, uh, I am a decent speller. But yeah, back in the day, uh, I can remember explicit times, probably, you know, first grade, second grade, where they would hand you, you know, 10, 10 words you must learn by the end of the week on Monday. And I was continually bringing back 30s and 40s. And I remember my mom just being like, it's just unacceptable. You know, you have five days, you have five days to learn these things. And I remember essentially some form of an ultimatum being put down that if you don't get 100s on these things, then we're gonna have to, we're, we're gonna have some, some conversations. <laughs> and I, I have, you know, this is one of those, I, I'm not gonna call it trauma, but one of those memories that was pretty clear of just me, my brother and sister and my parents sitting down at dinner and everyone just grilling me on the 10, you know, words that I was supposed to learn and be ready for uh, the next day. And uh, again, this goes to the, the the hard work. There's no excuses. You have agency. You put in the work. You'll see the results. I definitely saw the results. Um, and you know, since then, I've uh, I've used that as a as a good uh, north star for me every time uh, something hard is put in front of my face. All right, we're gonna get into more of this stuff. But um, so so at the same time that you're, you know, pushing yourself academically, where does sport and and basketball come into play like how does is that happening deliberately with a lot of passion or is it something where it kind of naturally just starts to become a passion for you yeah um i grew up again i have early memories of kansas my dad playing soccer so you think about nigeria or you think about you know the global sports community any immigrants gonna love football right soccer first and foremost so that was his sport um, so I was active as a kid and I remember kicking a soccer ball around my first sport was soccer, uh, but about the third grade, um, you know, it's, I think it's hard to be in North Carolina, right? The, the, the you know, tobacco road, Tar Heels, Blue Devils, kind of you name it and not fall in love with basketball. So by the third grade, I was introduced to basketball. It was the thing that I played with all of my friends up the street at school, you know, started joining, you know, the YMCA's, uh, you know, AAU. And by the time I was probably the eighth grade, I just made the decision that basketball was the sport that I enjoyed, that I got energy from, that I wanted to continue to pursue as I got into high school, potentially college. And um, probably much to my dad's chagrin, put soccer aside and uh, just focus on basketball. <laughs> and then you end up at Yale. And, and how does both academically and on, you know, with a, with a serious run on the basketball team, Talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think context probably matters. So if anyone pays attention to Ivy League basketball these days, it's pretty impressive. You know, they're they're right up there competing. They're beating some big name teams, ACC programs, so on and so forth. And I'd say that the league has gotten incredibly good uh, over the course of the last couple of decades. But if you were to rewind back to you know, the, <laughs> the, the, the late 90s, um, you know, when I joined Yale, I, I often say and I joke, I think that we were second to last on the AP poll for Division One basketball programs uh, when I agreed to, 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 to go there. So as you can imagine, my college choice was primarily dominated by academics and the opportunity to study computer science, the opportunity to go to an institution like Yale. Um, but it was grounded with the opportunity also to pursue basketball and to play sports. And 
that was a big piece of my life at that point, a big part of my identity. And, and for Yale to offer me the opportunity for a great education and basketball was, um, was almost a no brainer. But yeah, I joined a team that wasn't great. <laughs> uh, and the journey over four years is one that I'm incredibly proud of. And, you know, we went on to, to, to grow the program and really set the stage for, in my opinion, what the, what the program looks like today and what the ID look, looks like today. But it was, it was not pretty in those early days. <laughs> you know, another, so there's two places where I'd see you early in the morning. One was at your desk <laughs> and the other was, we had this little gym at Facebook um, yeah. back in the day and there were very few people in it, <laughs> which I could never understand. <laughs> but uh, you were always there every time I showed up because I'd ride my bike to work and do a little workout and you'd be returning from a run. You know, that's that's probably, what, 15 years removed from yeah. basketball. So your life as an athlete and, and what role that's played and kind of how you think about work and health and you know, your whole approach to life. Yeah. I mean, it's the, I, I've learned and I've learned so many, if we were to go even deeper on the Yale experience, Yeah, most, most of my leadership team, uh, work ethic and audition on top of what my parents taught me come from that four year experience. Mm. And, you know, you bumping into me at the gym <laughs> early in the morning, uh, yeah, as an extension of that, you know, I start my day off with uh, with some type of workout these days, uh, you know, in COVID it's been a little bit trickier because, uh, running outside, uh, in the dark isn't necessarily ideal. Gyms haven't been open. I don't have that much space at my house, but, you know, ultimately trying to figure out a way to get my body moving, um, get my mind moving. It really helps me get sharp in the morning, uh, has been an important piece of, of how I've operated and navigated life since being a quote unquote, full-time athlete or, uh, or, uh, you know, having that be a bigger part of my identity. So, um, that won't change, but yeah, a lot of the, a lot of the leadership lessons and life lessons, um, uh, that I had have come from the, uh, the basketball court. Well, yeah, that, that, so at Yale, that like I, in the open, and I was talking about the, you know, what you were recognized for, was that with how you led the team or on campus? Like where did yeah, people it, see that? Everything from showing up myself to, to definitely how I led the team and then how the team, I think, showed up for, for the university at the time. I mean, as you rewind back to my freshman year, you walk in, I'm sure many athletes have this experience. You were you know, the best in your high school or best in your community. Now go to the next stage and all of a sudden it's a big punch in the face. It's like, oh, this doesn't come as easy anymore. Everyone's bigger, faster, stronger and plays the game a bit smarter than I do. You know, how do I make this transition? My transition was rough. You know, I often joke that the, the coach at the time didn't even know my first name. In fact, he just, you know, used curse words to, to ask me why I wasn't running hard, why I wasn't working hard. In retrospect, again, he saw a lot of potential in me, but he didn't see someone who understood really what it looked like to sell out on the court, right? To really work out on the court, get the best out of, you know, the God-given talents that you know, I had been given. So um, I think a lot about how I matured as an individual uh, and what hard work looked like on the basketball court. And I, I credit, you know, James Jones, who's still the, the basketball coach at Yale for, for drawing that out of me and teaching me a lot about myself. Um, there, I didn't play much my freshman year. And, you know, Coach Jones and I had a conversation at the end of the freshman year. And it's one of those really splash water in your face conversations where he was like, hey, you know, decent year. Uh, just so you know, I went out and recruited seven guys for the freshman class next year. 
some of them jump higher than you, run faster than you, drill better than you, shoot better than you, play defense harder than you. So, you know, have a good summer. I'm not quite sure where your role on this team is next year. And that was, you know, a punch in the gut, uh, you know, send someone home for the summer with not a lot of optimism of what their role looks like on the team. So I look back now and, you know, someone who was stubborn back to, you know, how my parents raised me, you know, I have agency. I worked harder. I played more basketball that particular summer uh, at a higher level with the toughest, you know, opponents that I could find in order to come back that next year. And, you know, a team voted me most improved player, blah, 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 blah. And by the end of my sophomore year, I had been voted to captain. And I think I was probably the first captain of the Yale basketball team at a junior level um, or as a junior, uh, maybe in their history. So, you know, use kind of focused, hard work, uh, you know, no excuses, uh, knowing, you know, even if you weren't going to be the, the most talented that, you know, your, your mindset and your point of view can uh, compensate for a lot and actually you know, make you incredibly effective uh, as a part of the team, right? And really work as a part of the team. Right. So, uh, yeah. And as captain, like I say, just, just to connect the dot to what happened, we had a, um, a tragedy that happened in our um, baseball and football community. Just a couple kids uh, were driving to New York City and, and passed away in a tragic car accident, a really bad tragedy that hit the community, hit the Yale community pretty hard that year. And uh, the year I was captain, Yale went on to win the first Ivy League championship. And uh, it's like 40 years, first postseason victory. And who knows how long. And uh, I remember the president of the university who I probably couldn't have picked out by face, you know, reached out and said, I don't think you understand what you and the team and the way that you guys played energized and brought back to life this community during a time that was incredibly, incredibly tough for us. So, you know, whether we knew it or not, we were showing up for the Yale community at large in a way that uh, really helped heal some of those, those, um, that tragic loss that we had earlier in the year. Yeah, that's very meaningful. Um, on the community side, and I think like finding purpose, like now we fast forward to 2020 and very dramatic year on all accounts from the pandemic to what's happening with race and equality in the, in the country. And, um, you know, for Facebook, the scrutiny has never been higher um, over the last several years. And I guess looking at you personally, like everyone I've talked to over the last few months, regardless of whether at a startup or at a big company like Google or Facebook, like people are struggling a little bit with just finding their purpose when you're home alone. (laughs) Um, so, Mm -hmm. so there's like the, the finding your purpose in this environment. And then there's you leading a team. And then there's Facebook's impact in the world and its impact on issues that I know are very important to you. So I guess reconciling those and, you know, from the personal perspective and also how you help keep your teams motivated and in yourself with so much happening around you. Yeah, I I say 2020 has been the 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 confluence of a bunch of different crises like you named we have the the health crisis with the pandemic uh i had many friends that were affected by the economic crisis that then came as a result of that uh you you talk about racial uh justice or the inequities that i think you know were surfaced this year in a very um you know in your face way and 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 ubiquitous way and clearly that's a that's a reality that i deal with on a day-to-day basis as a 
black person growing up and and navigating America. Uh, and then here in California, what we all remember when you couldn't walk outside, right? And this was a good reminder of just the climate crisis. So all of that happening in one year was a lot and was heavy. Dave, the thing I will say to you is my purpose was never in question, to be honest with you. I feel like I've, I've been anchored on what my purpose has been for probably my entire life, to be honest with you, and being able to articulate it more crisply and clearly is something that we all can do in retrospect and really examine what gives you energy and why you wake up every single day. But for me, you know, I mean, back to my parents, I think about the, the bathroom that I grew up in, they had this plaque up and it was a life lived for others, is the only life lived for others is a life worthwhile. And that's a quote by Albert Einstein. And the thing that I like most about that quote, and it's been my North Star, is that you have a man of science and kind of technology and math there that is telling and reminding everybody that the reason to operate and to navigate life is in service of others. And that's always been my North Star. It's been the reason why I was drawn to Facebook and the reason why I continue to be, you know, pretty fueled and excited about what we are doing and what we have the opportunity to do even 10 years into my, my particular journey here. I think as a leader, 2020, of course, was a curveball. Right. A lot of the way that I lead and the way that I connect with my team and the way that I build trust and the way that I motivate is physical. Like I love to be there. You know, I love to be in the mix. Um, that might be the athlete, which is like, I don't want to be on the sidelines watching. I want to be on the court, you know, playing and in the mix of the game with people. So being removed from people physically and having to operate and to lead and to build trust uh, in a pure virtual world required you know, new skills, uh, you know, skills that I probably haven't leaned on in a long time, flexing those in order to be successful. Um, you know, a lot of mistakes and being comfortable and being, you know, uh, egoless enough to understand when I was messing up and not showing up well in kind of this new environment that required different types of, of leadership. And then at a higher level, you're right. All of those crises that I just walked through, uh, when you're working at a company right now that is, you know, touching over 3 billion people across our properties every single month, you know, those show up in the work that we do and how we are contributing or not contributing, helpful, not helpful uh, on a daily basis. And, you know, leadership uh, at any of these organizations right now in 2020 and, you know, probably moving forward, right? It's not going to get less complex. Um, does require a new level of just like bravery and boldness that um, I don't think that would have, you know, been been adequate if you think about the, the the last decade or so. So, a lot of adjustments that are being made right now. But uh, purpose has always been clear. We are a tech platform, a deep believer in technology and technology's ability to to tackle a lot of the people problems and societal problems that you know we saw over the course of 2020 really get accelerated, right? And that continues to fuel me and gets me excited every day about about figuring that out and contributing. When you think about the and this isn't even a question just specific to Facebook, but um, I mean, the tide has shifted in the media, which, and in, I would say in the public about the, there's more questioning of tech for good. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's like just been a progression, you know, over the last five or six years. Um, okay. And you know, I left three years ago and that was definitely already a progression that was in kind of moving through Silicon Valley, um, giving people a North star internally at a company right now, like 
you know, what's working? Because there's so much important work that has to be done, right? And the uh, being able to touch 3 billion people with products and experiences and policies and, you know, being able to manage it, like, what's the, you know, in a virtual environment right now, how does that, how's it, how's yeah. that happening? Yeah, it's the, the, the tides have definitely shifted, right? When you think about when we started at the company uh, to today, it's, it's almost a complete 180, right? And I would often say that we could have sneezed back in, you know, 2008, 2009, 2010, and the world thought that we were, were changing the world, which was way too generous. Um, these days, we can do something like, uh, I don't know, you know, help 4 million people, you know, get registered to vote, right. uh, do something that is demonstrably, in my opinion, good for society. Uh, but there will be more cynicism, questions, criticism thrown about what our intentions are and what our, uh, what our motivations are. And it's, it's a tough environment to operate in. Uh, as you know, I'm a, an optimist. So I often just tell our teams internally from like a spiritual perspective, I go, look, you know, our North star is to build products that, you know, can meaningfully improve people's lives, right? And give people power in unique and kind of qualitatively different ways. Uh, continue to focus on that and continue to like be anchored on that. And ultimately, that will be the story that will be told over time. And if you can do that in an environment where there are nothing but questions and cynicism, still build something that resonates with people, you know that it's gonna it's gonna stand the test of time, right? It'll 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 be good in the good times and you you've built something in the bad times. So I'm, I'm okay with the criticism and cynicism, to be honest with you, given uh, the size and the scale and the reach of what we are accountable for, there is a very high level of responsibility and accountability that we internalize here at the company. And uh, I, don't, I don't fault people externally for expecting kind of the same level of kind of accountability and, and thoughtfulness that we need to put in, into our products given kind of the reach, the reach that we've, uh, we've achieved at this point. The, uh, the other point though, Dave, is like when you're, when you're on the inside, you have the data, right? right? You, and, and that's what makes it so demonstrable for me, which is, yes, I can spend, you know, uh, a day or two or three, you know, addressing some of the issues or the questions or the, the cynical points of view that people have about how our products are showing up for the world uh, and pick your favorite kind of area or space. But what I don't think anyone externally has is the 100x amount of stories that I have day to day of how, you know, someone someone's uh, you know, grandparent lost their life during COVID and the only way they were able to connect with them at the tail end of their life was the fact that they were two Facebook portals, you know, one sitting in the hospital so they could see their grandfather uh, and one sitting in their kitchen and dining room table. And that and the way that our technology showed up for them at that point in that meaningful part of their life, um, they'll never forget. Uh, I have stories, you know, part of part of my job um, over the course of the last decade was to work with, uh, you know, the people who were using Facebook's tools and technologies to strengthen their communities. And this is everything from people who were using Facebook groups to organize, uh, you know, support during uh, hurricane relief all the way to, you know, uh, farmers like Noah, uh, who's out in Kenya and, you know, used a Facebook group to to build a community of small farmers that needed to upskill themselves and really make a living for themselves and is now thriving. So 
You know, I have stories like those for days, like that is data, that is empirical evidence of how our tools and technology are demonstrably good for the world and for society. And I have way more of those stories than I do of the, of the, uh, of the opposite, right? And um, that's, that's always kind of a grounding foundation and pillar for people who are working internally. From a perspective of like, you look across the products, the Messenger and Oculus and Instagram and and Facebook and Facebook groups. And, um, so much is focused on the feed that is Facebook's newsfeed, right? Like, and, um, especially in, in the media, like we're in the middle of an election, these podcasts hopefully stand the test of time for the next two years. So hopefully, uh, <laughs> we'll have an answer to what's happening in this election by the time people listen to this. But, um, on, on, you know, being black in technology and with mm-hmm. what's happened this year, um, mm-hmm. again, almost as like a personal level and then as a societal level and then as a f- Facebook's ability to show up and and help um, or to spotlight voices that needed to be need to be spotlight spotlighted. Um, where are you optimistic on this year and where are you troubled i mean i know you're an optimist so like where 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 are we going in a way that like yeah how do you feel about where things are yeah i mean so i'll I'll give of course the optimist point of view and then i'll tell you maybe some of the areas that i i feel maybe a bit more troubled or a little less optimistic the first is and i can speak you know uh demonstrably for facebook but i i assume that this exists for the industry writ large which is we care about this issue. Like we care about this issue of racial equity. We care about this issue of justice. We care about the, you know, the treatment of, uh, of blacks in America. Like we care about this issue enough to figure out what is our contribution to actually solving it, right? This is a societal issue that's way bigger than any industry or way bigger than any company. So the question is, is a society has to do this work what is the contribution that we as an industry can do? What is the contribution that we as a company can do? We asked ourselves that question, um, you know, as, as um, you know, at the passing of George Floyd and uh, a number of other folks. And I've, of course, been uh, inspired, impressed, excited about the, the contributions, the allyship, the, like, intentionality that the internal Facebook community leadership all the way down to you know, the person who was just hired yesterday has towards trying to figure out what our contribution can be. We did, you know, typical Facebook style hackathons, like let's get good ideas, let's surface them. Not all of them are going to be great, but if you can find that 1% that's going to be decent, why wouldn't we launch it? Why wouldn't we do it? Uh, one of the things that we're able to do is a lot of the conversation around, uh, you know, race in America wasn't actually giving space or rooms or platforms or microphones to actual black voices. So uh, as a company, we ended up launching a hub, you know, Lift Black Voices hubs. It really was just a, an aggregation of video, of, uh, of, of posts, of news stories um, from black voices on this particular topic so that we could continue to elevate the discussion um, make more folks aware of the discussion, hopefully move things forward over, over time. We continue to invest in that, which is great. Um, in this new role as head of new product experimentation, uh, you know, one of the things that we think about and one of our, our, our kind of core belief and mission is that we believe that 
we can enable a bunch of underserved needs. And inside of those underserved needs, there's actually universal products that are going to lift the entire world. So as a company, when we were like, okay, what can we do to contribute? It was a really easy decision for me as a leader to say, raise my hand. This is important to me. I'm going to dedicate a portion of my resources across my organization to focus on this and see what we can't do from the tech seat to actually tackle the societal issue. And, you know, I now have a, you know, a handful of entrepreneurs who are thinking about equity, thinking about what they can build in order to advance equity on a number of different dimensions right now. Um, but it's no surprise that we would raise our hand to do that. And this maybe uh, bridges to your point of kind of where I'm, you know, optimistic, but probably have more concerns than not, which is, uh, you know, representation matters. The fact that my new product experimentation team was able to go and tackle this so quickly and figure out what the right approach we were going to take was, is not a surprise or mystery, I think, to anyone at the company. It's not just me, right? My leadership team is about 50% women, 50% people of color. And in order, in my opinion, for us in the industry and for companies to get this right over time, you've got to have the butts in the seats. Right? You've got to be representative of the community that you're trying to serve and the diverse community that you're trying to serve. And you, the, the numbers are public. Facebook's numbers are public. The rest of the industry's numbers are public. We've got work to do. There's a lot of work to do. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting over in a technical seat now and I look around at you know, the technical representation uh, of, uh, of Blacks at, at, in our industry. And I just know that we're not where we need to be, nor we deserve to be, or where we can be. So, um, a lot of work to do on 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 that front, Dave. But um, you know, I am you know over the next decade, I'm hoping that we're looking back and it's very different. So that's my my dose of optimism on that front. <laughs> yeah, one. I mean, on the um, you know, a lot of people aren't going to Yale or Stanford, and they they could have a huge impact in tech and it's it's like an obvious statement but i mean when i think back to when i walked into facebook in 2008 it was 400 people and almost everyone went to harvard or stanford at the time at least it felt that way to me (laughs) and my like insecurities Mm -hmm. having knock on there at the moment and uh and then you realize that it's hard work and you know, it's, that's what, that's what people look at. And I really appreciated that. And it meant, meant a lot to me. Um, but what have you learned through your years of, of opening doors for the people who don't have the perfect resume, but could have the perfect contribution? Yeah. I mean, look like genius is everywhere. And, uh, you know, if I went back through pivotal moments of my life, I would probably point towards moments of me bumping into somebody, learning something, uh, learning how to speak the particular language or uh, you know vernacular just to navigate a new industry or space that has been more critical towards me being at a place like Facebook and having the opportunities I've had to, to build and to do the things I've done more so than the Yale degree more so than the Stanford degree or anything along those lines. I don't want to trivialize those things, but they're not, silver bullets, by any imagine, nor are they even required or needed. Um, you know, I, I think about, I just, I just spoke with a, a woman the other day who's been at Facebook for about two years now. And if I told you her story right now, you'd be like, ah, yes, I get it, right? Grew up in East Palo Alto, 
didn't have an opportunity to go to the best of, you know, the private schools or anything along those lines on the peninsula. Uh, her community was the Boys and Girls Club, East Palo Alto, kind of the surrounding areas. Met a mentor at like 12, who stayed in touch with her, encouraged her to continue to learn, continue to pursue high school education, and then think about college. Mentor and I happened to know each other because we sat on a board together. Says, hey, really talented person, you know, doesn't have all of the, the fancy, you know, credentials that, you know, potentially you guys typically look at, like you're describing Facebook in the early days, but pick up the phone and talk to her. Pick up the phone and talk to her. Smart, passionate, excited. I was like, oh, okay, this is, a, these, these are all the right ingredients and the right raw ingredients that all they need is an opportunity to see them shine. Put her in front of the right recruiter, you know, right team picked her up at some point two years ago. And she's been at Facebook thriving and dominating ever since and it's been incredibly proud. And to your point of what happens when you actually open up those doors and make those opportunities happen is that it's, it's, it's a catalyst for the rest of the community. So the reason why she's top of mind for me is we caught up last week and was catching up with her, right? The, the typical conversation, how's COVID treating you? <laughs> you know, how's, how's, how's sheltering in place treating you right now? And she described uh, her, her current sheltering in place situation. She said, but look, I've had so much time to, to think this year. And one of the side projects I've been working on is building up a mentorship and kind of a demystifying Facebook and demystifying the tech industry program for more people in my East Palo Alto community, more people at the Boys and Girls Club. So they don't look at Facebook and say, oh, that's something that I could never be a part of. She's like, I'm a standing testament. I've been here for two years. And it's like, yes, exactly right. And you've been doing well and you've been thriving. So A, they need to know your story. And then B, the fact that you are now taking your time and your energy to open up more doors because the door was open for you is exactly the reason why it's worthwhile. And it makes sense for us to spend energy on this stuff. So. Those are the stories that you hear day, time and time again, of just, you know, you got to get people the right opportunity. One of the things that I'm, I'm really excited about, and as you can imagine, I personally spent a lot of time and energy with is Facebook is opening up an office in Lagos, Nigeria next year. And, you know, Mark and I and Chris Cox, our chief product officer and I and a couple other folks have traveled to Nigeria over the course of the last five years. And we walk away every single time with a, whoa the entrepreneurial spirit, the talent, the tech hustle, the excitement, the energy in Lagos is non-trivial. Like, how do we give this opportunity, this talent a chance? So, uh, you know, part of our office opening is, you know, the typical, typical functions that exist outside of the United States for Facebook. But I also have a product team that's going there. We plan on hiring entrepreneurs and, and engineers and designers and, and researchers to explore uh, and build new standalone experiences and apps with a lens on Nigeria, a lens on the African continent, but of course a, a global lens and everything that we will do and build will have hopefully the potential capacity to be universal. That's great. Powerful. On that, the entrepreneurial spirit. So you, you know, you've seen that very up close through your different roles. And I can think back to, you know, us work, your I think when you started, you were working mostly with our music partners. So Spotify okay. and Pandora and iHeartRadio, I can remember all of them. And uh, at the time, so there's Daniel Eck, who has gone on to become, you know, like one of the mm -hmm. top entrepreneurs in tech. And 10 years ago, they were just launching Spotify. And mm -hmm. 
you know, you've obviously become both close friends and close partners with Mark. Um, So what do you see in the entrepreneurs for people out there who have that entrepreneurial bug? um, Mm -hmm. What are some of the common threads you see in these people who have taken an idea and made it really, really meaningful? Yeah, um, you're right. I've I've spent times with uh, a ton of entrepreneurs and founders over the course of the last decade. And I'm sure there are common themes. There's probably a laundry list. But the first one that pops to mind for me is they have a vision for the future, uh, more often than not one that is positive, that is optimistic, uh, that is about helping people, that is their fuel. And you know, when I met Daniel and some of the early Spotify team, it was really just like a better way to discover and share and consume music. And it could and it should be social. And, you know, we have this innovation trend called streaming music that's going to make it possible and more ubiquitous for us to, to build some really interesting experiences. Where, where do we get started? What do we do? When you talk to someone like Mark, I often tell people that, you know, Facebook's been around for 16 years. We've changed our mission statement, but the five words that have never changed have been give people the power to, right? So you kind of have this North Star that, you know, an entrepreneur or founder is maniacally focused on, right? It is uh, it is the story they want to tell to the world and they're going to, you know, jump through hoops over walls, you know, break bricks in order to, to, to see that vision realized for the world. And that always is a, an inspiring thing to be a part of and to, to participate in. Um, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was. You can keep going if you had another point there. No, I was just going to. And then it's and then it's a focus on that. There is a a commitment to it. Um, there's a commitment to solving the problem, but a flexibility on the actual solution. And that's large part of what you know, I'm trying to do here at you know, new product experimentation, which is, you know, there's. Uh, an appetite for new experiences and products. You know, one third of the top, you know, 100 most downloaded apps every single year are brand new. Like they are new entrants. So there's this demand for new experiences out there that entrepreneurs have the opportunity to solve. Uh, you know, pick your pick your area, pick your space, but their appetite is there. And the question is, is can the entrepreneur get the focus, the space, the time, and the resources to realize that? And they chip away at the problem. Uh, you know, they go down one particular path, it may not work, uh, but they're not, uh, they're, they're resolute on the fact that they're going to go try to solve that problem and not shy about, you know, stopping when things aren't working and pivoting and, and doing it again. If you were to rewind back to when I first met the Spotify team, a lot of the ideas that we had back then are getting fully realized a decade from now. And we tried to do it back in a desktop world and a desktop experience, things like uh, listening with people <laughs> on Facebook chat. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah. Uh, yeah you, you fast forward now, technologies need to catch up, right? You got mobile phones, you know, a lot of that kind of social integration and, and experience is now happening inside the Spotify app. I can fire up the Spotify app right now and we can listen together at the same time. Um, 10 years have passed, right? Technology has changed, but the kind of the solution that they were, um, you know, trying to, to put towards that problem has changed a lot, but the problem is still there and, and, testament to any entrepreneur who's focused and continues to stay at it um similar on the we've got on so on ProKit, so so my company um we have a lot of um athletes and sports nutritionists and team coaches and people kind of building sub communities within kind of the endurance sports world or the health world so 
what because you've been very involved too on the community builder side what are the common traits or things you've seen from community builders that have you know really become common threads for doing it successfully yeah I mean, there's a couple different things. The thing I would start with and the thing that we discovered after, you know, studying the communities and the sub communities that were emerging across Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, Messenger um, for the last five years, right? We went up and pivoted and changed our mission statement to giving people the power to build community. The one of the grounding forces and the things that we realized is that at the center of every single community is a leader, right? And I often talk to to, to some of the leaders that I have met um, that have been building communities across Facebook and Instagram and other, other uh, parts of our platform as heroes, because oftentimes they are, they're, they're unassuming, right? They don't, they didn't start off on this path of, of leadership. Um, they started because they need to solve a problem, right? I remember you know, I met these two sisters during Hurricane Harvey and they started a Facebook group to need to coordinate amongst their friends and their family. Right? Hey, is everybody okay? You have the resources, your power on. You know, how can I get you from point A to point B? And you know, they they went to sleep. I say metaphorically, kind of woke woke up, but it was probably a couple of weeks later. And this group that they had started with, you know, twelve of their family members had turned into a group of over a hundred thousand people in the Texas community, coordinating relief efforts uh, and support uh, in the wake of Hurricane Harvey. And these sisters were in their 20s <laughs> and now all of a sudden they're waking up every single day moderating and supporting and, and, and supposed to be the anchor of this you know 100 plus thousand person group that really is dependent upon their community as a communication channel um, in the wake of this in, in the wake of this crisis so you know what can we do is it's how I, I i ask the question to ensure that those two sisters and you are probably seeing this on ProKit right now too which is like you know, folks that are creating these communities, what can you do as a platform to ensure that they have the tools, the resources, the time and the space, the help, the knowledge, oftentimes that resources capital in order to ensure that they can continue to build a healthy, thriving, meaningful community that, you know, arguably for a lot of people that are using our platform uh, and technology more, more, more broadly, it's the most important utility they get from the experience. Um, so you want to make sure those folks are supportive. So who is the leader uh, amongst these groups and that's and taking care of them? This is a little bit more of like a macro question, but the um, we're talking about the community leaders locally. I think it feels like with a little bit of like the death of local news and you, you hear about things nationally right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> and where do things go locally? Like, what are you seeing? What are because the, there there are these local groups, there are these, but there's like I'm not not just in tech, but um, uh, obviously like the best community building tools are also bringing together people in real life and strengthening yeah. those real life connections. So, um, you know, I remember when I left a couple of years ago, that was already becoming a big focus of conversation at Facebook of figuring out how to help help there to strengthen communities and in, in real life. So um, where's, where's that stand today? I still think it's pretty important. You I mean, you're right. There are, there are a number of different topics that can capture everyone's mind. I mean, we are, you know, we're talking about the U S election right now. And it's just not a, a national conversation. It's an international conversation. 
the conversation around uh, racial justice this year wasn't just a U.S. conversation. It wasn't even just a right. statewide Minnesota conversation. It was a national conversation. I feel like there's a number of those different topics which will continue to be global and continue to be national or international. I'd actually argue, Dave, that there are actually more localized conversations or niche conversations or communities that people have access to um, than definitely 10 years ago and clearly more than more than 50 years ago. And technology has enabled a lot of that. So um, as we've seen that trend continue to evolve, the question is, is, you know, what are those communities? How can you make them you know, a meaningful part of people's lives and identity? Uh, the notion and the thing that you're scratching at right now is definitely something that I've been interested in, which is, you know, yeah, we, we can do a great job, the tech space writ large, of, of helping people connect, um, you know, offline uh, in, a, in a world where uh, physical proximity is being prohibited, which is what we saw during COVID. You know, technology really shows up in a pretty powerful way. But I think that we all believe that there's nothing that will replace in person, human to human, uh, kind of physical world, uh, uh, relationships, connections, um, and how can technology be a bridge for that? So, you know, I've seen the rise of more and more people building tech to do things uh, back when, when, when it's safe again, right? When, it, when we don't have a global pandemic, but to get together locally, to, to get together around the dinner table to have conversation, you know, to get together to to, to clean up their local park, right? To get together to, to volunteer at their, um, you know, cities, you know, food bank or shelter, anything along those lines. And, you know, that's not just Facebook. You see other tools uh, emerging out there to try to tackle and make that digital to you know, pretty excited about that too. Awesome. I know you have a busy day ahead, so we'll wrap it up and uh, let's close it out on um, habits, tools, resources that you use to get through your day productively so morning routines any that you should that we should know morning routines uh dedicated alarm clock at a certain time that works for you and as much as possible avoiding hitting the snooze button but you know i use my iphone i use my 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 apple watch these days in order to to wake myself up and get going and get started um, how, how, about, I mean, uh, how about apps or, um, yeah, I always see you on the Nike running app or I have, yeah. So, yeah. so what are your, what are your go-to apps? Not just the Facebook family of apps. Yep. Outside the Facebook family of app, go-to apps, of course, um, Spotify for music. And that's whether I'm, I'm working out or running. And then, uh, the Nike app and that goes way, way back to when I was, dog fooding their early integration with facebook oh the fuel uh, what... band i remember that from uh, <laughs> from uh what was yeah the, the tech right. conference that's in right. austin <laughs> that, that's exactly right at, at south by yep. and that's what got me into running so you know a decade later i'm still using you know the nike plus running app to, to track my runs and you know make sure that i have a, a repository of the progress that i'm making and you know, sadly, I'm I'm slowing down, but uh, I'm still capturing the data. <laughs> yeah, and you were run. You've I, I always would see you running with uh, with Chris Cox, and mm-hmm. you know you've run with Mark during his year of running challenge. Um, but I assume that's not happening as much right now. <laughs> no, I'm not having as much right now, unfortunately. I think uh, everyone's getting a little bit older, and who who wins uh, in a race, you or Mark? Oof. 
man. We have, how, Mark's how pretty competitive, isn't he? Very, very, very competitive <laughs> and a really strong runner. So I actually think it probably depends on length these days. You know, he, I probably have a good 100 pounds on him. So uh, I'm, we're, we're built as very two different runners, to be honest with you. <laughs> and what's on your bookshelf these days? Oh, man, what's not on my bookshelf? I'm actually right now, um, in this space, ties back to a conversation about community, reading a book by Bob Putnam. So Robert Putnam, uh, a lot of folks will know his, his work um, on bowling alone, which talked about the demise of communities, offline communities, over the course of the last 60 years, since 1960 in the United States. And he just released another book, I believe it maybe two months ago, called The Upswing. And the thing that he is admitting is that bowling alone, which was which was seminal work, right, has informed a lot of the reasons why we think you know helping communities get rebuilt is a is a north star for Facebook. Um, he is saying that the issue he had was he only looked at data from 1960 to today, right, which shows you the downfall of communities. But if you take a snapshot and you and you zoom back out to the early 1900s, the same issues around inequality. Uh, political polarization, and some of the other issues that would just say that we are more of an I, an individualistic society versus a we society existed in the early 1900s and the late 1800s and turn of the century. And that there was actually an upswing that led to 1960, where we saw collectively across America, we were more of a we than an I society. So his book is an examination of kind of what were the things that changed and that happened in the early 1900s, the late 1800s, that got us to a point in 1960 where we were way more communal as a society here in the United States than we are today. And are there lessons, are there tactics, are there ideas that we can start to deploy now and see if we can't have another upswing? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Seems like a worthy book to read. I should pick it up. All right. Anything I missed that, uh, where can people find out about the new products coming out of your group? Yeah, there's a website, npe.fb.com, I believe. And we keep it. It's a blog post uh, with some of the latest and greatest uh, things that we're building, experiments that we're putting out there, uh, uh, in addition to a couple different think pieces, too. So I'd encourage everyone to, to go check that out and download the apps, play around with them, know that they're experimental. We know that everything that we launch isn't going to resonate with everyone, but we are hoping to to solve real people problems and, and build stuff that's compelling and that matters to the world over time. Awesome. Anything I missed? Nothing from my end. All right. Well, you just got married. So happy congratulations on a Thanks. major life event. And Thanks. we will see you on the interwebs until we can see you in real life. Absolutely, man. It's good to catch up with you. I'm glad that you're doing well. I'm glad that you're, you're, you're doing this too. This is pretty exciting. Awesome. So for you, I remember, I remember when you were starting to think about this idea and talk about it. So I know I pitched you on it on the roof of, uh, of Facebook in 2016, I think on our last walk and it's too bad you didn't have this group going. Maybe I would have <laughs> entrepreneurs. There we go. Hey, you know, the, it is, there's, there's always time. <laughs> so, you know. There is always time. All right. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll talk right, to you then. soon. Absolutely. Have a good one. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Common Threads. If you liked the show, please tell your friends and followers on social media and encourage them to tune in. You can also leave a rating or review to help new listeners discover the show on Apple Podcasts or whatever service you're listening on. Or send me feedback directly on Twitter at David underscore Swain. 
and then head over to join our new platform for athletes at theprokit.com.